Will you take the infallible record of the Word of God and turn to Romans chapter 11. We continue our verse-by-verse study of this marvelous epistle and we find ourselves in verses 11 through 24 this morning. I'm going to read this section to you, but we're only going to focus primarily on verse 11. But I want you to get the context. And I've entitled my discourse to you, Israel's failure is not final. Romans 11, beginning in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? These are amazing truths and very important truths. However, many times I have discovered that Christian people know very little about them. In fact, these are the types of things that Christians many times kind of brush by. And for this reason, many believers are what you might call spiritually malnourished like a person who lives on junk food. We all know that a steady diet of fast foods and sodas and ice cream will ultimately kill you. You need a balanced diet, right, in order to be healthy. And you need to exercise. Well, likewise, we as believers need a balanced diet of the Word of God. We need to know the whole counsel of God, not just certain portions. 
And we must exercise our faith in godly living and service. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In fact, this was central in his argument to the church at Ephesus and to the elders. It was important to preach the whole counsel of God so that the elders there could be on guard for themselves and for all the flock to protect them from the savage wolves that would come in among them and not spare the flock, he went on to say. They would speak perverse things, draw away the disciples after them. And we see this all the time in Christian circles because Christian people know so little about the Word of God, they become easy targets for false teachers. For this reason, he commended them to God and to the Word of His grace in verse 32 of Acts 20, which is able to build you up. So, my friends, we come again to a very important passage of Scripture. And you must learn this. And It is my calling and responsibility to teach it to you. And by it you will grow. Now, for those of you that come on a Sunday morning, and I know there are a few of you who say, oh no, here we go again. We're in one of these technical, difficult passages of Scripture. I'll be glad when we're out of all of this old, heavy doctrinal stuff. You know, if that is your attitude then quite frankly, you are like the immature believer that the Apostle Paul described in 1 Corinthians 3.1, men of flesh, babes in Christ. The men of flesh are those that have an attitude that pursues self, not God. And it was for this reason that he said that he had to give them milk to drink, not solid food, because they were not yet able to receive it. So, may I say in all kindness that if you do not understand some of the things that you hear, mark it and ask me. Do some research. Learn it. That's how you're going to grow. If you don't understand a word, write it down phonetically, ask me later on, and get what's called a dictionary. And then learn that word. Add it to your vocabulary. I simply cannot dumb down the Word of God for those who are the least educated within our congregation. And there's nothing wrong with being uneducated. You get me around a lot of things and I don't have a clue. But we are here to learn. Okay? So I don't want to hear any whining. I want you to be excited about the fact that the Lord wants you to grow so that He can bless you. And so I just simply cannot pander to especially those who are willfully ignorant and lazy. Just look at our public schools and you'll see how that works out. I've heard believers say, well, I just can't understand a word that he says. Well, that's probably true. It's probably because you're content with your ignorance. Frankly, you're really not concerned about growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. All you need to do probably is just look at your time. See how you spend your time. In fact, as a footnote, I did a little research on this. I found that the collective amount of time Americans spend on Facebook every month is more than 100,000 years. The average American spends an average of 6 hours and 33 minutes on the social network each month. That's 2 hours per day or per week. 
An average adult spends four and a half hours per day watching television. That's 30 hours per week. And the average adult in the United States spends two and a half hours per day online, on the Internet. That's 18 hours per week. So if you add Facebook, television, and the Internet, you get 50 hours a week. No wonder you can't understand anything I have to say. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 15. Be careful. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, before we go to the text... I have much to say. That's why we're only going to be able to look at one verse today. Realize that about one-third of the Bible is prophetic. And most Christians are woefully ignorant when it comes to Bible prophecy. You ask people about various texts in the prophetic literature and you'll get all kinds of crazy ideas. In fact, I was talking with some believers recently who were interested in, frankly, a cultic system called British Israelism. Sounds very impressive, but it's staggering how dangerous that system is. Frankly, it's replacement theology on steroids. Produces a virulent strain of anti-Semitism. They argue that since God abandoned the Jews, that the Anglo-Saxons are the direct lineal descendants of the ten so-called lost tribes of Israel. And now they, the Anglo-Saxons comprise the ten lost tribes. And in fact, many believe, and I ran into this in England quite a bit, that the British royal family is directly descended from the line of King David. Well, there's absolutely no historical, biblical support for any of that. And that's why we have to come to the Word of God. And pastors must, must preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, verse by verse, so that people will understand and not be victims to error. So let's turn away our attention from all of the passing pleasures of this world and Let's look to the eternal, glorious things of God that speak of His love and His eternal purposes. Now, last week, we examined Paul's vehement denial that God is not finished with the Jewish people. That national Israel's failure is not total. He said in verse 1, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. Now, a prima facie or first blush look at Romans 9 through 11 readily leads to the conclusion that Paul is not speaking here to mere individuals, but to Israel as a nation. Very important for you to understand this. He is speaking of God's faithfulness to fulfill His unconditional, unilateral, irreversible promises to Abraham and his descendants. Um, a promise of a regenerated nation of Israel in their land, lovingly submissive to their acknowledged Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's arguing that Israel's failure is not total. And he proves this by virtue of his own conversion, 
and God's covenantal regard for His, His chosen people, not to reject His people whom He foreknew in verse 2. God has always preserved for Himself a remnant of Israel, a remnant according to God's gracious choice in verse 5. So this is a sovereign preservation of the nation as a whole for a day of future restoration. In verse 12, he speaks of Israel's ultimate fulfillment. In verse 15, he refers to Israel's resurrection from the dead, which is ultimately their salvation. He makes it clear that while God has hardened the hearts of those who, who, whose hearts were first hardened against Him, whose hearts were hardened against the grace that He offered through Christ, even though that is true, He has not permanently abandoned them as a people. And for this reason, I reject the idea that ethnic, national, and territorial Israel is somehow all absorbed into the universal church, thus eliminating their national identity. That's what's called replacement theology, or sometimes supersessionism, that the church has superseded Israel. It has other names like amillennialism, postmillennialism. There's variations of all of this. But there are many that believe that the church now is spiritual Israel, that we are currently living spiritually in the Messianic kingdom that was once promised to Israel to be realized literally and physically. Now, if there was ever an opportunity for Paul to renounce unbelieving Israel permanently, it would have been here in Romans 11. Just after his arguments in chapter 10, where he so conclusively demonstrated the accountability of the Jews for their rejection of Jesus Christ. Surely, if there was going to be such a radical change in God's promises to His chosen people, a change that centered around the permanent extinction of national Judaism and their permanent replacement by the church, surely he would have affirmed it once and for all in this section of Scripture. Or at least made it clear somewhere in the New Testament canon. Instead, he does just the opposite. In fact, at the close of Romans 11, he commences with another passionate affirmation of Abraham's national descendants. The promise of a regenerated Israel based upon the promises of God to their fathers in verse 28. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For Paul to suggest to unbelieving Israelites in the synagogues that he went into and into the church there even in Rome, that God's promise to their fathers did not include the land and the Messianic kingdom, that all of those things are now spiritually realized in the church, that is just contrary to reason, contrary to what he says. Especially since he addressed them earlier in chapter 9, verse 4, as being Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Now again, sadly... I believe, as we examined last week, there are many who hold to this position of replacement theology. Certainly, a number of the early reformers did. 
Augustine, Calvin. While I'm convinced this is an unbiblical doctrine that violates the explicit statements of both the Old and the New Testament that teach and affirm a massive national salvation and restoration of Israel when Christ comes in all of His glory, I would still humbly add that this is not a measure of orthodoxy. It is not something that would cause us to break fellowship. Some very dear friends I have hold to this position. But before we examine this fascinating portion of Paul's epistle, I want to draw your attention to something that is very fundamental, that is very important for us to grasp as believers as we approach this study in Romans 11. While the text offers much to us with respect to eschatology, in other words, the study of the end times, and it offers much to us with respect to an understanding of ecclesiology, the doctrines of the church, it also speaks strongly to something that is often missed. And that is the issues of Christian love and ethics, especially as it relates to Jewish people who are today, currently, God's beloved enemies. Paul is going to address the issue of Gentile arrogance in this section, a derisive spirit of superiority, an attitude that obviously existed in the early church and it still exists today. Some among them, as we are going to discover, believed that they were the new people of God. Somehow they were more deserving than Israel that was now permanently abandoned by the God that once loved them. And sadly, history records that this shameful attitude has existed down through the centuries and still exists to this very day. There are many Christian people today who resent Jewish people. There is a strain of anti-Judaism that exists. And some, in some places it leads to even a more virulent strain known as anti-Semitism. And an, and, and an honest examination of church history will reveal that much of this is rooted in replacement theology. Naturally, it is easy to see how an eschatological system that believes that God permanently abandoned the Jews in A.D. 70 could breed this kind of animosity and this feeling of superiority. My, my point is simply this. Good doctrine is going to produce good fruit, not bad fruit. And as a student of church history, it is abundantly clear that replacement theology, not always, not with everyone, but certainly it has fueled the fires of anti-Judaism in the church. I would challenge you to read Barry Horner's excellent work called Future Israel, Why Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged. Horner leaves no stone unturned in tracing the historical roots of replacement theology and offers compelling exegetical refutations of that system of theology. He said this, quote, Augustine and Calvin represented predominant Catholic and Reformed heritage of Jewish-Christian relations that spans 17 centuries of church history. 
An astonishing ignorance abides today concerning the legacy of Christian anti-Judaism and works of church history frequently fail to discuss it. Here we have the record of a conflict fraught with uncomfortable truth, especially with regard to the violation of Christian ethics and how Christians have treated Jews throughout church history, particularly with regard to the underlying driving eschatology. He went on to say, in a real sense, history is the proving ground of revealed truth. Those who neglect this relationship between doctrinal truth and ethics end up conferring on mankind error and its unethical consequences. End quote. In reading some of the more strident defenders of replacement theology, it is obvious that they have an intractable theological aversion to modern Judaism in the state of Israel. If you don't believe this, go to uh, the website for Knox Theological Seminary and read their letter to evangelicals and other interested parties, the people of God, the land of Israel, and the impartiality of the gospel. It's under their heading, the Wittenberg Door. Even non-believers who have studied this have observed this kind of aversion to Judaism and to the state of Israel. One prominent Jewish woman, Melanie Phillips, a British journalist, author, a social commentator, a graduate in English from Oxford University, wrote a book called Londonistan, where she tries to make sense of the cowering response of the United Kingdom to the modern invasion of Islamic culture in England. While the reaction of mainstream Christianity, including many evangelicals, especially the Church of England, is one of a growing attitude of anti-Judaism. And in an article that she wrote entitled Christians Who Hate the Jews, she expresses the shock that ran through her when she began to understand that at the root of the escalating conflict between Christianity and Israel and its strange sympathy for Muslims and Palestinians is replacement theology. Here's what she said, quote, It was one of those sickening moments when an illusion is shattered and an ominous reality laid bare. I was among a group of Jews and Christians who met recently to discuss the church's increasing public hostility to Israel. The Jews were braced for a difficult encounter. After all, many British Jews, of whom I am one, are themselves appalled by the destruction of Palestinian villages, targeted assassinations, and other apparent Israeli overreaction to the Middle East conflict. But this debate never took place. For the Christians said that the church's hostility had nothing to do with Israel's behavior towards the Palestinians. This was merely an excuse. The real reason for the growing antipathy, according to the Christians at the meeting, was the ancient hatred of Jews rooted deep in Christian theology and now on widespread display once again. She went on to say, A doctrine going back to the early church fathers, suppressed after the Holocaust, had been revived under the influence of the Middle East conflict. This doctrine is called replacement theology. 
In essence, it says that the Jews have been replaced by the Christians in God's favor. And so all God's promises to the Jews, including the land of Israel, have been inherited by Christianity. Some evangelicals, by contrast, are Christian Zionists who passionately support the state of Israel as the fulfillment of God's biblical promise to the Jews. But to the majority who have absorbed replacement theology, Zionism is racism and the Jewish state is illegitimate. End quote. Beloved, such attitudes within the church hardly square with the heartfelt love that the Apostle Paul had for God's beloved enemies, as he calls them in verse 28. So as we approach this subject, let's remember the profound importance of rightly dividing the, 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 the word of truth, knowing that sound doctrine is going to promote godliness, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.3. Sound doctrine, rightly understood, will produce the same kind of apostolic compassion for the Jews that the Apostle Paul had to the point where he cried out saying that he, he longed in, in verse, um, verse 2 of chapter 9, he had great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. In fact, in Acts 28.20, Paul, you may recall, entered into Rome and called the leading men of all the Jews together. And he said to them, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. I believe that a proper understanding of God's plan and purposes for Israel as a nation will produce the same heartfelt, heartfelt sacrificial love for Jewish people, those who remain loved for the sake of God's irrevocable promise made to them through Abraham. Moreover, I would submit that a proper eschatology will really ignite our hearts. And that's, that's one of the passions that I have for each of you to ignite your heart in anticipation as together we look forward to that glorious day when the Jews shall ultimately inherit all that God has promised them. When, according to, to Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 14, He will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced and they will mourn. When according to Zechariah 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that day? When the Lord will be king over all the earth, in that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain. He goes on to say, and in verse 11, and people will live in it and there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, let's return to the text. Since God has hardened their hearts because of their unbelief, as we have learned in verse 7, and since He has given them a spirit of stupor in verse 8, it would be easy for some to assume that God has finally abandoned Israel forever. 
that now the the Gentile church make up a spiritual nation comprised of all races, and one that would be one that just includes some token allotment of a Jewish remnant. But once again, Paul refutes that idea. Even as he made clear in the first ten verses that Israel's failure is not total, that we looked at last week, he now goes on to argue that Israel's failure is not final in verses 11 through 24. And he's going to develop his argument in three categories. We're going to look at part of the first one today. And the first one will be this, that there is a twofold purpose for Israel's failure. Secondly, we're going to learn that he rebukes arrogant Gentiles for concerning Israel's failure in verses 16 through 22. And then we're going to see how he describes the glorious prospect reversing Israel's failure in verses 23 through 24. So here we are today. Israel's failure is not final. It is not permanent. Why? Number one of Paul's argument. It would have to do with the twofold purpose of Israel's failure. We see this in verse 11. Before we look at it, may I remind you that God does nothing capriciously, nothing whimsically. He has a specific reason for everything, including the temporary hardening of the hearts of His people. So Paul's asks a rhetorical rhetorical question in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? The term fall in the original language means to be permanently destroyed. To be destroyed beyond salvage. That didn't happen to them, did it? The answer is, of course not. Their stumbling and rejecting their Messiah is not final. They are not facing some irrevocable doom. I would ask you, do you really think that the God who foreordained Israel's rejection of Himself would then abandon the very plan that He set into motion when they rejected Him as He predicted and ordained that they would? That makes absolutely no sense. Do you really think that all of the Old Testament prophecies are to be interpreted, therefore, spiritually? That God didn't really mean what He said? That we throw out the normal meaning of language and now we have to look at some deeper spiritual symbolic meaning to all of those prophetic truths? Beloved, if that's the case, I have no idea what over a third of the Bible teaches. And you know what? You don't either. You will recall that in Deuteronomy 30, the first six verses, God predicted what He had predetermined. He predetermined and therefore predicted that Israel would one day reject Him that they would be banished into foreign nations because of their disobedience, 
But yet, because of his great compassion, he would eventually restore them into their land and he would redeem them unto himself under the new covenant. Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 30, we read, Then the Lord God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered. By the way, as a footnote, we're beginning to see some of that even today. He goes on to say, If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Of course, this promise of future restoration into their land is based upon God's covenantal promises with Abraham that is so often repeated by Moses and the prophets. You will recall in Genesis 15, verse 8, God promised Abraham that his descendants would possess the land, quote, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Folks, that's a whole lot more than they have ever possessed and a whole lot more than they possess now. In Genesis 17:8, God promised Abraham that he would, quote, give to you to your, and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And in Exodus 23, verse 30, God once again fixes uh, Israel's future boundaries. He says, quote, from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river. So God's promises of boundaries to Abraham even preceded the house of Israel and measured far beyond what Israel has ever historically possessed. Moreover, a key element of the fulfillment of the new covenant, which incidentally was made with Israel in Jeremiah 31, was that Israel would one day be restored to that specific land and would enjoy other forms of physical and, and, and spiritual restoration. All of this is consistent with the language of Deuteronomy 30. Beloved, Israel's ultimate salvation that God ordained and predicted in Deuteronomy 30 was also reaffirmed by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, and now Paul. So, of course, Israel's failure is not final. I say then, verse 11, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Or we could translate it far from it. Of course not. In the marvelous mercy and providence of God, there are great blessings awaiting the Jews and the Gentiles. As a footnote for those who believe that the church is now spiritual Israel, once again, I would humbly argue that it is contrary contrary to reason to conclude that the same God who predetermined both Israel's failure and their spiritual as well as physical restoration would then change His mind and permanently abandon them and replace Israel with the church. That all His physical promises promises to them would be renounced and fulfilled spiritually in the church. Surely, somewhere in Scripture, he would have clearly stated such a monumental change. Moreover, if that were true, 
If that were true, what Paul is about to explain here in this text with respect to God's purpose in Israel's unbelief would make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Paul is going to explain that God has a twofold purpose in Israel's unbelief in their failure. One is to bring salvation to the Gentiles and two to bring salvation to the Jews. The church is to be God's instrument of righteousness in His marvelous plan of redemption which will climax in the salvation of Israel. Now again, if the church is spiritual Israel, Paul's entire explanation would beg for relevance. Now let's look closely at the twofold purpose of Israel's failure, which God ordained in eternity past to bring glory unto Himself. First reason is to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Look at verse 11 again. He says, But by their transgression, referring to the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. There it is in one sentence. God is using Israel's failure to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And He uses the Gentiles to cause elect Jews to become envious, to arouse in Israel a yearning to be reconciled to God and to enjoy the blessings that He is pouring out upon the Gentiles. Obviously, Israel's failure is not final. Once again, all of this is according to God's sovereign plan. Jesus predicted this in Matthew 8, beginning in verse 10. You might recall that context. He's responding to the Roman centurion that came to him in repentant faith that that caused Jesus to absolutely marvel and to say in verse 10, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many, referring to Gentiles, shall come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, referring to the unbelieving Jews, shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, of course, this would have been an absolute shock to the Jews. They, they, they were apoplectic with rage when they heard this because in their mind, the Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. And to think that somehow they would be part of the kingdom, that's incomprehensible. Now, as a footnote, this is important for you to understand when you think about the kingdom. If you look at Scripture, you will see that there's a thing called the universal kingdom. From all eternity... There has existed a universal kingdom or dominion of God whereby He rules over His creation. But secondly, when you look at Scripture, you will see that there is also what we would call a mediatorial kingdom where God rules through divinely chosen human representatives who would speak on His behalf and who would represent the people before Him. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we witness... Uh, the divine government upon the earth through a variety of mediators. And they would have, they, they would serve in one of three functions. They would be a prophet, a priest, or a king. And ultimately, only the Messiah, 
Only the Lord Jesus Christ will be able to fulfill all three functions when He returns as King and rules in the final mediatorial kingdom on earth, when the King of Kings comes upon the earth and inaugurates a perfect theocratic kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David, according to Isaiah 9-7, executing, quote, judgment and righteousness in the land, according to Jeremiah 33-15. And all of this will be in fulfillment of a covenant that cannot be abrogated, cannot be transferred, according to Jeremiah 33, verses 20 through 21. Very important passage of Scripture for you to know. And later in the New Testament, we see that the initial fulfillment of this covenant was set into motion at the first coming of Jesus, who was the promised seed of David, who will rule in a future earthly kingdom as the promised Messiah. So many passages speak of this. For example, Daniel 2:44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set upon a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now, some will ask, well, what about the spiritual kingdom? Isn't there a spiritual kingdom? Well, yes, in some ways there is. Luke reveals to us in his gospel, as well as in Acts, that the kingdom will come in two stages. He he speaks about how that it is here both already, and yet he says, but not yet. You see, the kingdom was already there in a spiritual sense in that God was rebuilding the house of David through His greater Son, the Lord Jesus, the raised and reigning Jesus. And in Christ's first advent, when He first came, the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants all received an initial, partial fulfillment. But obviously, there's much more to come. Now, When Jesus came, when the Messiah came, the immediate establishment of the kingdom on earth was contingent upon Israel's attitude towards their king, towards their Messiah. Because all the divine promises of the covenants pertained to the nation, but they rejected their king. We will not have this man reign over us. And so the earthly messianic kingdom was postponed as God knew that it would. So God shut out most of the Jews for whom the kingdom was intended, although a remnant will one day believe and be restored. Jesus described this as well as in Matthew 21, verse 43. He says, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. The people producing the fruit of it. I believe this refers partially to the church, which Peter described as a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9, but also this will include a repentant, a regenerated nation of Israel living on a renovated earth with her Messiah, which is in harmony with all of the Old Testament prophecies, where she will possess even a rebuilt temple that Ezekiel details in chapter 40 through 48. By the way, why would God waste so much time giving such profound details about a future temple if, in fact, it wasn't going to be a future temple, if it was just some spiritual analogy 
of the church and our relationship to Him. But there will be a rebuilt temple one day. One that that will be unfathomably more glorious than any other if you read the descriptions of it. And for the first time, Israel will worship with a pure heart in ways that are unlike any former generation of Israel. And the Lord Himself, imagine this, the Lord Himself will be in His temple. No Ark of the Covenant, the Lord will be there. There will be no veil, the Lord will be there. And we will see Him. How I long to see this. And folks, whenever we study these great doctrinal truths, you must transport yourself into the day where you will experience the glorious fulfillment of all that God has promised the redeemed. Do you realize that we are going to reign with Him? 2 Timothy 2.12 1 Corinthians 6.2 Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We're going to see these things. Oh, child of God, does this not thrill your soul? Think about it. To think that the Son of Man graciously shares His dominion with those whom He purchased with His very blood. Absolutely staggering. God has promised that Israel will one day be a glorious nation. That she will be restored to world supremacy. This is so magnificently described in the Old Testament. Probably nowhere any better than in Isaiah's description in chapter 60. If you read that chapter, you will see that he describes how they're going to return from their worldwide dispersion back to their own land, back to the city of Jerusalem, that the nations which had afflicted them will come and pay homage to them as the chosen people of God, that foreign kings will minister to them, that the wealth of the nations will be devoted to their prosperity and the beautification of the sanctuary of the Lord, that their days of mourning will finally be ended, that violence and destruction will no more invade their borders, and that the Lord Himself will guarantee their political supremacy. In verse 12, He says, For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. As a footnote, as a footnote, how anyone could apply that prophecy to the church is beyond me. After Isaiah described the tragic, sins of Israel in chapter 59. Only extreme theological prejudice could possibly see in chapter 60 the glory of the church. It makes no sense to me. This is why Paul knew that God was not finished with unbelieving Israel. Isn't God's plan of redemption amazing? So many intricate aspects of it. Think about it. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And my, aren't we recipients already of that blessing through Christ that came from His loins? Through Moses on Sinai, He called Israel to be His witness nation to the world. Exodus 19.6, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then through Isaiah, He reminded them that they were to be, quote, a light of the nation so that God's salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49.6. Now, She failed miserably as His witness nation. She failed in her mission. But we know, for example, 
during the days of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, God is going to empower her to be extremely effective as a witness nation because He is going to bring conversion to 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 Jewish males from each tribe to preach the Gospel. And then again, when she is restored to her land by her Messiah, when He returns, they will be His witness people as He promised they would eventually be. But meanwhile, as we see here in this text, because of their transgression, verse 11, God has invited into the kingdom the despised Gentiles, which probably includes virtually every one of us in this worship center. Paul and Barnabas infuriated the jealous Jews in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, beginning in verse 46. There he said, It was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for thus the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes Isaiah 49.6, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. But God has a second reason for Israel's failure, not only to bring salvation to the Gentiles, but also, secondly, to bring salvation to the Jews. Notice in verse 11, again, he says, to make them jealous. To make them jealous. The little phrase, to make, grammatically, in the original language, denotes intent, denotes purpose. God has a reason here. None of this is catching him by surprise. He's not having to change his plans. God did not permanently set his people aside. No, not at all. He had a purpose to bring salvation to the Gentiles so that we could in turn make them jealous, make them envious. In other words, he wanted to expose their sin and the horror of its consequences that they might, by the power of His grace, repent and be reconciled. And boy, talk about getting their attention for Him to come along to these filthy, stinking Gentiles and to transform them. That's why Paul will later say to Gentiles who are proud, and boy, we can be proud without a cause, right? In verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. In other words, this marvelous chain of events that results in Israel's salvation. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. And here's why. That a partial hardening, the idea of a temporary hardening, has happened to Israel until... What a wonderful word. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and thus all Israel will be saved. And once again, I would add that only the most severe form of theological bias can twist this text to refer to the church. Paul looks beyond the benefit to the Gentiles due to Israel's transgression. He looks beyond all of that 
and sees a more glorious blessing that will accrue to the benefit of his beloved kinsman that is causing his heart to ache. A blessing that will be inaugurated by a redeemed and resurrected Israel. Just read Ezekiel 37. When those bones come to life. Now, in our next gathering, I will unpack this for you in great detail. Because contained within the next several verses is a marvelous picture of all that God has planned not only for His church, but also His chosen nation of Israel. But in closing, we must ask a very important question. Let me put it to you this way. You specifically. You, my beloved church family. Are Jewish people provoked to envy when they look at your life? Do they look at your life and desire God's rich blessing because they see in you this transformed life, this life that is given sacrificially to the Savior? That they see in you all of the blessings that they would long for in their life? I've talked to a number of Jewish people who at one time hated Christ, hated Christianity. But because of the witness of the life of certain believers, they were provoked to jealousy. And they wanted what that person had. And that opened up the door to the Gospel. That's God's intention, dear friends. Not that they might become Gentiles, but that they might enjoy the fullness of being a Jew in loving submission to their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear that too often when they look at us, as Paul warned, they see arrogance instead of humility. They see contempt rather than love. They see hypocrisy rather than sincerity. They see apathy rather than commitment. So examine yourselves, dear friends. And leave here knowing full well that Israel's failure is not final. I close with a quote from Horatius Bonar. He was a great Scottish preacher, a writer, theologian, scholar, and also a hymn writer of the 19th century. And he emphatically underscored this great truth that Israel's failure is not final. Here's what he said. Forgotten? No, that cannot be. Other names may pass away, but thine, my Israel, shall remain an everlasting memory. Forgotten? No, that cannot be. Inscribed upon my palms thou art. The name I gave in days of old is graven still upon my heart. Forgotten? No, that cannot be. Beloved, if thy God art thou, His crown forever on thy head, His name forever on thy brow. Forgotten? No. That cannot be. Sun, moon, and stars may cease to shine, but thou shalt be remembered still, for thou art His, and He is thine. Let's pray together. Father, we're always humbled when we immerse ourselves in Your Word. 
for in it we see once again how minuscule, how unworthy we are to be a part of so great a plan of redemption. Therefore, Lord, these great truths provoke us once again to humility and to praise. I pray that each of us will examine our lives that we might live in such a way as to provoke to envy all people, especially Your beloved enemies, the Jews. And Lord, for those that do not know You as Savior, overwhelm them this day with great conviction, knowing that the wrath of God is suspended over them unless they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things in the precious name of our Savior and for His glorious sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.